Welcome back to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today you'll hear Andrea's story. Andrea shares what she describes as a domino death. One event led to another in a tragic series that ended in her mom's passing. Andrea has taken her grief and turned it into a blog. You can find all of the information that Andrea shares in today's podcast in the show notes. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. And now, here's Andrea's story. Hi, this is Beth, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have with me Andrea. Um, Andrea and I met online. She started following the Daughters Without Moms um, on Instagram a while ago and has listened to the podcast, and um, she has done a really good job of sharing her her story of her mom's journey in writing, but she's decided to do it today in words. Um, so I'm glad that she's here and I'm gonna turn the mic over to her and let her introduce herself and then tell us her story. So thanks for being here this morning. Thank you for having me, Beth. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, so hello everyone. My name is Andrea. I live in New York and um, I'm a, not excited, but I'm happy to be able to share the story of, of my mom and, and her journey into heaven with everyone today. Um, so my mother passed in February of 2016, uh, kind of a lot of events surrounding her passing. It was ultimately, um, you know, caught us all off guard. Um, she had been scheduled for a breast surgery um, for a breast reduction in January of 2016. A uh, little backstory about that. For a long time, she had always suffered from an abscess in her breast. And um, when it would flare up, she would go to the doctor. He would drain it for her. And then he ultimately, you know, suggested to her that maybe a breast reduction would help uh, prevent these from happening. Thank God nothing was ever cancerous, but this was more for prevention. So um, she finally mustered up the courage to book the surgery um, in January of 2016. Um, it was originally for the beginning of January and then she needed a plastic surgeon and a breast surgeon, but one of them wasn't able to, you know, be there for the original date. So they rescheduled for the end of January, January 28th, I believe was the day. It's the last Thursday in January. Um, so my mom's passing kind of is like a domino effect. Um, and in my opinion, I think each day and each domino surrounding her passing, you know, really like everything kind of just, you know, fell into place all the ways that I think it shouldn't have. But so the weekend before her surgery, um, we had a bad snowstorm, nothing like the snowstorm that we had this year, but bad enough, you know, there was a lot of snow on the ground and it was icy. And that Sunday, my mother had asked me to, you know, bring some food over to my grandfather. He only lives about like 10 minutes away from us. And like the bratty 24 year old that I was, I was like, no, I don't feel like it. And, you know, like the great mom that she was, she was like, okay, I'll do it. Um, but you know, some, for some reason, something in me said to her mom, you know what though, take my car because she had just leased a brand new car. And I was like, God forbid, you know, the roads are bad. God forbid something happens. At least it's my old, like 
2002 Honda Accord and not, you know, your brand new car. And it, it's so funny. It's like, as if like, I knew something would happen, you know, not, not 15 minutes after she left the house, we received a phone call that she was in a car accident. Um, nothing major, thank God. But, you know, the car was a little roughed up. She had gotten shaken about. So my dad went to go and be by her. Um, they were taking her to the hospital, not the hospital that she was getting the surgery at. There's a smaller sister hospital under the same umbrella. Um, that's closer to us that you go to, you know, for minor things like that. So they went to that hospital while I stayed home on the phone with the insurance company. Um, and when they get back, I, you know, ask them, is everything okay? Um, all her pre-op testing had been done. And the way that the hospital system works is if you are within 30 days of your pre-op testing, it's considered valid. So since they rescheduled her surgery under 30 days, you know, that was a separate issue. So when they get back from the hospital, I find out that they only did a physical examination of her. No testing was done, not even an x-ray. And they said, you know, you're just a little sore, go home, take some Advil and, and you'll feel better. So that was like the first red flag that like, you know, stuck out in my mind, but okay, what do I know? I'm 24 years old. I'm in school to be an ultrasound tech, but like, I'm not in the field that, you know, I'm giving my blind face to the hospital system. So that was Sunday, Thursday, she goes in for the surgery. Um, and she had been a little nervous about it, which surprised me because my mom was a very, very brave woman. Um, never really let on when she was scared or worried about anything, but she was, she was visibly nervous. And, you know, now looking back, I wonder if it was a bad feeling that she had, or, you know, I, I don't know, you know, it was just something that, that scared her about having the surgery, but you know, we all assured her you're doing the right thing. You know, this is something that the doctor suggested. Do you really want to deal with an abscess for the rest of your life? So she went through with it. Um, I was taking class at night at the time. So I took off from school that night just so that I would be able to be home to help care for her when she got home from the surgery. Um, but I, um, I had asked my dad, you know, let me know when she's out and in recovery. I want to come up to the hospital and see her. So he did. And when I got to the hospital, um, I had seen my mom in a state I had never seen her in before. Again, my mom always put on a brave face for all of us. Um, I had never, you know, I think she maybe had a couple of little procedures done here and there, but I've never seen anything like that with her. Um, so seeing her waking up from the anesthesia was hard for me because she was very out of it. Um, you know, very not herself. And my dad, you know, reassured me, he had obviously seen her under anesthesia, you know, uh, in the past. And he said, no, you know, she's just really not good at waking up from anesthesia. It's okay. Um, I was okay with that. Um, but as we sat there by her bedside and and she was just, you know, moaning and groaning in pain. And, and I watched her in a hospital bed. I thought to myself in that moment, oh my God, this woman can never be chronically ill because I couldn't handle it. Um, in the years past, in 2012 and 2014, I lost each of my grandparents um, to cancer. And I was, you know, one of the people who was right there in the hospital with them and, and to help take care of them, you know, 
in hospice and, and in the hospital and, and took them to their doctor's appointments. And for my grandparents, I could do that. But looking at my mom in that moment, I knew like I would never have the strength to do that for her. It was just not her. You know, she was, she was too strong of a woman. I couldn't see her like that. Um, so that was a, a strange thought that had come to my mind while like being there with her. Um, so then I'm, you know, holding her hand and I, and I look down at her arm and it's all, I notice it's all like swollen, um, and like red and blotchy as if it, you know, was an allergic reaction to something. So I called the nurse's attention over to it. And, you know, I said, Hey, look, you know, I don't know what's going on, but you know, this arm doesn't look like the other one. And they, okay. Yeah. You know, I think it's just an allergic reaction, maybe to the IV or to the anesthetic, you know, so they, they said they would give her something and that eased my worries about that. Um, so at that point, my dad had said, you know, go home. I'll, you know, when she's awake, we'll come home and that's it. So I went home and I waited for them. And when they got home, thankfully her arm, you know, didn't, was back to normal. So that, you know, wasn't a concern of mine anymore. And, you know, she was just, she was tired, a little nauseous from the medicine and, you know, everything that you would expect post-op for a breast reduction surgery. So that was Thursday. Yeah, Friday kind of, you know, carried on like you would normally, again, see someone post-op, you know, she was tired, a little in pain, sore, a little bit of a headache, but nothing really. Again, like my mom wasn't a complainer. Um, you know, she wasn't saying anything like, oh my God, my head. Oh, it was just like, yeah, I have a headache and okay. We brushed it off. Everything's normal. Um, they had given her pain medicine to be taking. So, you know, we thought we were doing all the right things. Saturday morning comes and now I'm about to, you know, go and run around, do some errands. And she, you know, was complaining that her leg was hurting her and it was cramping and, like, okay, like rubbed it for a second. And then I was like, well, maybe, you know, don't rub it. Let's just see if like the pain goes away on its own. Hopefully maybe take something. Um, so that Saturday, you know, carried on as usual. I ran some errands. She stayed home. My dad was home with her. Um, and that night I had been planning on just going to a local bar with a friend of mine to just get a drink, catch up. Um, and I, I had showered, I was in my bedroom and, you know, my hair like half blown out, just sitting on my bed in my robe, texting and making my plans for the night with my door shut. And I, I hear a sound that I, I never want to hear again in my life. And it's my father shouting and screaming for me. And at first I wasn't concerned because, you know, living in my parents' house my entire life. You know, I had my teenage years where I would be blasting music in my room and, you know, and they would be calling for me and then their voice would get to an audible, like, I'm calling for you. And that's what it had sounded like to me. But as soon as I opened that door, I could just hear the, the panic in the air. And I, I went down the stairs and I see my mom laying in bed looking as if she was maybe having a seizure, you know, struggling to breathe. And my dad just over her, you know, panic stricken, like he had no idea what to do. So, you know, I look at her and, and I think to myself, okay, it looks like she's having a seizure. You know, I have, I have, I'm in school for medicine, but I have very little medical knowledge or experience. 
So my first instinct is she's having a seizure. I need to go get a spoon to put it in her mouth so she doesn't bite her tongue off. So run down to the kitchen. I grab a spoon. I come back up. But at this point, her mouth is, is clenched shut and I can't pry it open. So I'm on the phone, you know, I'm calling 911. And while I'm doing that and shouting, you know, my mom's not breathing, you know, something's going on. She's having a seizure. I'm, I'm like screaming my address into the phone. And at the same time, just trying to pry her mouth open with the jaws of life that I could. And I don't, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the details of that night, you know, escaped me in time. You know, it, it seemed like a matter of minutes and it seemed like, you know, days at the same time. So at some point I do get her mouth open and she lets in a big gasp you know, and, and I shoved the spoon into her mouth because I had no idea what else to do. But at that point, she wasn't moving any longer. Um, and she had kind of, you know, become still. And again, it was something that was, you know, a matter of, I don't even know how long, but I, I stood over her and I, you know, I looked at her at some point I had passed the phone to my dad so that he can, you know, keep on talking to, you know, 911 and um, I'm standing over my mom and, and I just look at her and I think, oh my God, she's not breathing. I have to do something. And at this point, again, very little medical knowledge, but I know if I give her CPR right now and I give her chest compressions, I'm breaking every single stitch that's on her chest. And do I really have to hurt my mother further to, to essentially save her life right now? And that, again, I can't tell you how long that moment was. It felt like seconds, but it felt like hours that I stood there and I contemplated. And before I knew it, there I was giving, you know, giving my mom CPR and really trying to save her. Um, I honestly don't know how long I carried on doing that. Um, I remember looking back at my dad and he was just standing on the other side of the room, just I've never seen him, you know, just look so empty. And he said, she's gone. And I was like, I, what? No, what do you, I, she's not gone. You know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't face that. And, um, and he was just, you know, standing there inconsolable. And, and I looked down and she had turned blue right in front of us. And at that point, you know, my mind was a million different places. I, I knew the paramedics would be there soon. At some point in this, I had run up to my room and put pants on so that they wouldn't walk in, you know, tried to be a little bit modest. At some point I put pants on and, and I flew down my steps. I live in, um, I live in a split level house. So I have a lot of steps and I, I don't think I, my foot hit a single step that night. I flew down the stairs, opened the door so that, you know, when they, arrived that there was, you know, they would just come right in. I think actually I might've opened the door first and then run upstairs to put pants on because I, I think by the time I came down the steps from my room leading to my parents' room that they were already inside working on her. Um, and they had taken my dad out of the room and brought him into the kitchen. You know, someone was collecting all of her medications and medical history and everything. And he, it was just, it, it's a scene that I'll never forget from my entire life. You know, there was, 
at one point I heard him punch the wall, you know, a spot that I could still point out to this day in the kitchen. And I just remember standing on the steps with the first responder and, and, you know, just crying to him and saying, just please save my mom. You know, just please save my mom. And that's all I could repeat. And I just watched them work on her. And I prayed harder. I prayed harder that that day that I've ever prayed in my life. Um, and I just kept like asking, why? Why is this happening? You know, in a matter of minutes, my life just completely changed. Um, so um, at that point, my uh, my brother and, and future sister-in-law were actually living next door to us and she came in the house and you know I kept her from coming upstairs and seeing what I had to see and I you know like I just told her mommy's not good you know they're working on her I don't know what's going on neighbors were flooding into the house because my mother was the person who like was in everyone's business so everyone was equally in ours um which was fine. I appreciated everyone, you know, coming to check. And um, I think they worked on her for about 40 minutes until they finally got her stable enough to, to transfer her to the hospital. Um, and I wanted more than anything to go, you know, in the ambulance. And my dad said, no, you, you know, your brother's on his way home from work. Please wait for him. And you two, you know, you two come to the hospital together. So that's what I did. My sister-in-law went home to, you know, to go get her stuff and wait for my brother and my house that was just filled with noises and people and chaos was now definitely silent. And I had never understood that expression before until that very moment. My, the silence really was like in my ears. And, um, so while I waited for my brother, I, you know, like I stood in my parents' room just looking at all the supplies and EMS left on the floor, you know, everything that they tried to save her with, um, the wet spot on the bed that she had left on her body released. And I just started cleaning, you know, I didn't know how long it would take for my brother to be home, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't keep, you know, I was optimistic. My dad's going to come home and I don't want any memory of what happened and she'll be okay. And so I, I gathered all the medical supplies and I threw everything out. I took the sheets off the bed. I, I you know, cleaned the spot on the mattress. I put your sheets on and, you know, it was like nothing ever happened. Um, and my brother finally got home. I honestly don't remember the ride to the hospital at all. You know, I was just trying to trying to figure out what I just saw and what just happened again, just nonstop praying. So when we get to the hospital, they lead us down to the very end of the emergency department um, where I see my dad with family from Long Island, which is, you know, a good hour away from where we live, but there was family there and some of the neighbors that have, you know, been at the house and they said, you know, they're still working on her. And I thought, okay, that's a good sign. You know, they're not giving up hope. Um, you know, we just, we just sit, stood there and waited. And um, I think after about an hour, again, the, 
time is is lost on me from that night but I think after about an hour the doctors you know everyone left the room and the doctor came out and said look she's she's fighting she doesn't want to go we're doing everything that we can but her heart is beating on its own but she's no longer breathing on her own um so you know we can figure out what we're going to do and they transfer her to a room um and they said to us well you know we're just not sure how much brain damage she suffered from the loss of oxygen i think i think you can go eight minutes being oxygen deprived and still keep some brain function um honestly i'm not sure how long she was without oxygen you know based on when she was in bed, you know, I don't think she was breathing. So we don't, we didn't really know much. We didn't even know what happened. Was it a seizure? Was it an overdose from the pain medicine? You know, we were still in, in the dark at this point. So they offered a solution to us and they said, you know, if we induce her in a hypothermic state for 24 hours, that um, would preserve any brain function that she still does have. And over those 24 hours, we'll do testing and then for the following 24 hours, we'll let her body naturally warm back up to its normal temperature and we'll continue to do testing during that. And at the end of those 48 hours is, you know, we'll have a better idea of, of how to carry on. And I mean, I think, I think we knew that night that like she was, she was gone and there wasn't gonna be anything left, but you know, you're giving us an extra two days, I said you know, I can't, I would never be able to forgive myself. And I don't think any of us would, if we didn't at least try those two days, you know, my mother was one of those people who, um, you know, like many others has said, I don't want to be kept alive by machines. You know, her exact words were, if I need a machine to breathe for me, put a pillow over my head because I'm over it. And, you know, we weren't going that far, but, um, but two days, I thought she couldn't forgive us for, for having two days of hope. If, you know, regardless of what the outcome would be. So that's what we did. Uh, and for those next two days, we, we practically lived in the hospital. You know, I went home to sleep, but I think my dad pretty much stayed there every single night. Um, and her hospital room, I mean, I think we were only allowed to have like maybe three or four visitors and there was no less than 10 people in there. At, like, and I mean, like random neighbors were coming to, to sit vigil by her bed. And, and that's what we did. We just sat all together and we prayed and we told stories. And one thing I also remember my mom telling me is she had lost her mom a good, I think, 10 years, 10 to 15 years before that. And, um, you know, she said she spoke to her and she heard that the last thing that you lose is your hearing. So I spoke to her those two days you know I was telling her things I, I prayed I bargained I bargained with God I bargained with her you know the one thing she wanted more than anything in the world was to be a grandma and I, I literally leaned over to her and I said if you wake up right now I will throw my birth control out and I will get pregnant with my boyfriend and if you don't want him I will I will screw the first doctor that walks in here and give you a grandchild I'm not kidding and I, I was serious you know, I was like, if that's going to get you to wake up, I'll do it. And uh, so, you know, there was a lot of, uh, there was just a lot of bargaining going on. 
And, and that's just the kind of person that she was too. She always enjoyed humor and things. And as, as terrible as the situation was, you know, I was, she was still my mom, you know? So I was like, if there's any way I can get her, it's with something like that. Uh, but so those, you know, those two days they came and they went and they were, they were hard. I don't even, you know, I can't even tell if I showered, if I ate, you know, they, they were just, they're two days lost in my life. Um, so Tuesday morning finally comes and that's, that's the day that the process was ended. And, uh, my father and I make our way up to the hospital. My brother, you know, uh, respectfully says that he can't be there. He was never good with, with, anything you know involving the hospital which I respect I am the opposite I need to be there um in the past both my grandfather and my grandmother you know when they were sick I I was you know my father and I were actually there and we were the ones to hold them as they passed so him and I like I said we're like I guess I don't know we're life buddies where uh that's just that's what we do. So him and I went up to the hospital and as we were waiting for the doctor, you know, to come in and talk to us and tell us everything that had been going on, I went to go hold her hand and the same hand that was swollen and blotchy after the surgery was now, it, it was necrotic. And now for those of you who don't know what the word necrotic means, it's, it's basically tissue death. Her entire arm was swollen to about like 10 times the size it normally is. And the color, it was, it was green and blue and black. And, you know, I was like, obviously this isn't, something's not right. And I, I called the nurse and I said, you, someone has to do something. I don't know what this is. So they had an ultrasound tech come in. And again, I was at the end of schooling, but nowhere near, you know, an expert. And I just, I stood behind her and I watched and to my knowledge and what I could see, everything looked normal. They didn't report anything to us. They just said, well, you know, we don't, we don't really know what happened. I have no idea. Okay. I mean, <laughs> you're supposed to, but okay. I, you know, I guess we'll just wait and see what the doctor has to say. Um, so the doctor came in and, um, and he, he sat my, my dad and myself down and he said, you know, unfortunately she has, you know, no brain activity left. You know, we asked all the questions, well, what happened? You know, if we keep her on the machines, will it ever come back? And he said, look, I, I'm just being honest with you guys. If she does ever, you know, recover any at all from this, blinking her eyes is going to be, you know, a hardship for her. And we knew in that moment that my mother was the most independent and, you know, she, she would never want to, you know, impose or be a burden on anyone. Not that we would consider it that, but we knew that there would be no quality of life for her anymore. And, um, you know, that's when we made the decision. So we stepped out and um, the nurses, you know, unhooked all the machines and they let us back in and um and we just sat with her we sat with her holding her and, and telling her that it was okay to go even though we weren't 
okay with it, but, you know, she needed to know that we would be okay and that, you know, there was a better place waiting for her. And, um, and we just sat there and we held her, you know, rubbed her head and I had my head in her lap and, and then she passed and, yeah, it was, it was the hardest thing that my dad and I ever had to do together. And, uh, you know, it's just, I still look back at that, that day, that week and think what, what in the hell happened, you know? Um, so, you know, when we finally received her autopsy, because we had no, you know, this was all out of nowhere. We had no idea what happened. You know, she had a car accident. She had surgery. She was on medication. You know, what in the hell happened? And the three things that stood out in her autopsy were that she had had blood clots in her legs. She had suffered a pulmonary embolism. And ultimately she had a brain aneurysm rupture. So again, kind of just like a domino effect of one thing leading to the other. But, you know, the part that haunts me the most is that I have no idea, you know, did she have this aneurysm even before the accident? Was it just something that was lying dormant in her? Was anything caused by the accident? Did she have stress from the surgery? What the hell happened to her arm? You know, so there's just there's so many, you know, questions still surrounding her death, but, you know, I've been told by a million people not, you know, you, you can't keep asking and I try not to, but, you know, I still have my days where I'm like, what the hell was it? Like, it's not going to bring her back. And I know that, but if there's just one, I like knowing things. I'm like, my mom, I need to know things. And, you know, it, it's just something that I'll always, you know, I'll go to my grave questioning, you know, what happened to my mom. Um, so not long after her passing, I'm, I'm a very type A kind of person. I threw myself right into my grief. You know, I allowed myself about a week or two to, to sulk and to stay in bed. But I was just finishing school and starting an internship. My brother was getting married, you know, two months after my mom passed. So we, we picked up a life, you know, in our new normal, however we could. I searched high and low. I, I think I bought every single book about dead moms in Barnes and Noble. I searched on Facebook for groups. Um, and I found a Facebook group based out of New York City um, called Motherless Daughters. And it's um, after the book by Hope Edelman which is the first book I picked up. And, you know, there I started to find community and realize that I wasn't alone. And doing that so early in the process, I think really helped me, you know, be able to, to carry my grief with me instead of letting it carry me. Um, from there, I met um, two other girls who actually live um, where I do. And the three of us started a Facebook group um, a motherless daughter's chapter for our neighborhood. Um, this way we can have local meetups and running that really helps. I really enjoy, um, I, I help my, I help myself in my own grief by helping others. It's what, just what makes me feel better. 
And aside from that, I started a blog. Um, as you mentioned, I'm, I write better than I speak. Um, so I, you know, have a blog that I mostly dedicate to my mom and how I'm feeling, you know, apologizing and not apologizing for being the person I am now and, you know, dealing with things like Mother's Day and, you know, planning a wedding without your mom, which I'm currently doing. And, you know, just all the things that, that I've, you know, been going through and, um, yeah, you know, and I, I've also started an Instagram page that a friend of mine um, left me a bunch of daily affirmations. Um, you know, she's a wonderful friend and, and she left them like in a mason jar for me, you know, early on into my grief. And I said, you know, I, I'm not the only one I think who needs to hear a daily affirmation in the morning. So I started taking pictures of them and, and posting them not every day, but, you know, maybe once a week or something. And Again, it's something that gives me a little bit of an outlet. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. You know, my, it's funny to say that like my life is exactly almost where I'd ever hoped it was despite not having her here. And I think that's in spite of her, and, you know, because she's now looking out for me and, you know, watching over me in ways that she couldn't while she was here. You know, I, I met my fiance four months after she passed. So he was... I think he was my, um, my gift from her a hundred percent. Wow. 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 Andrea, what a story. Yeah. Holy cow. Wow. They never figured out the arm thing. I mean, no one ever specifically said anything to me. You know, yeah. I've looked at her autopsy report a million times mm-hmm. there might have been a small segment about sepsis, but I don't, I don't know if sepsis would only, you know, in one leg. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it was the same side that she had had the abscess on part of me thinks maybe the abscess part of the abscess broke off infected her arm. But again, there's no, no answers about that. Right. Right. Huh. You know, it's all just my, it's all just my guessing. Yeah. Well, that's really tough for these type A black and white people that we like, we like to put things in a box where they belong. And when you, yeah. And when you have something major like this, like your, your mom's cause of death that you can't file away correctly. Yeah. I know. Yeah. You said you're going to take that with you to your grave. I totally understand that. Cause that's, that's, that's hard. That's hard. What a, what a series of I'm thinking of that book series, series of unfortunate events. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah domino death that you said as I wrote yeah. that down I was like wow that really really was I told you I had started reading your blog a little bit yesterday and mm-hmm. then I stopped because I wanted to hear your story here today but like I said my, it sounds much better on paper than it does coming out of my mouth but no, you did a great job you did a great job um so good for you for what you've done with that um that you said so can you I don't know if you remember what you said um you just said about doing this early in the process allowed me to carry my grief instead of my grief can you do you remember how you said that, that yeah awesome. yeah so thank you um <laughs> I said it allowed me to carry my grief with me instead of having my grief carry me yes um, and it's actually you know a phrase that I I say a lot you know I, okay. I would I kind of plan on writing a book and um and I would love to actually and obviously dedicate to my mom and I say like I have a pocket full of grief with me all the time. Like mm-hmm. you know, some some days it gets the best of me, and and that's okay because we're all allowed those days. But 
for the most part, I'm able to just, you know, kind of put it in my purse and go on my day. And I have a minute, I go into the bathroom, I take it out like a tissue, I wipe my nose with it. And then, you know, I'm, I'm able to, to function as a mm. semi-normal member of society. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. My, my, my um, visual is a mom-sized hole. Like I have a mom-sized yeah. hole um, that will always be there, but sometimes mm-hmm. it's bigger and sometimes it's smaller. And Absolutely. Um, yeah. So you have this, so you're an ultrasound tech, but you really have this, this, the creative writing side um, to you as well. Is that something that you got from your mom or is that like just something that you no, I don't think it's definitely anything I've gotten from her. Um, I mean, she she was always very um, animated, okay. but I've had a thing for writing ever since I was younger. Okay. Um, I just, I keep it as a hobby because I'm the type of person that if I'm forced to do it, I won't enjoy it anymore. <laughs> so well, don't tell me to do something because I won't. <laughs> exa- exactly. It's just, I would feel too much pressure about it and it wouldn't, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be authentic. So that's mm-hmm. why I just like to keep my writing for me and, mm-hmm. and as a hobby. And, you, you know, you can even see my blog posts. Sometimes, you know, I post every couple of months and then sometimes it'll be like almost a year if, since I haven't posted because I can't, it's just not something I can force myself to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, good for you that you allowed yourself, you know, the time to, to do this early on in the process, because I mean, it's taken me a long, long time, but, you know, to be able to acknowledge and realize that the grief is not going to go away and that's going to be in your pocket for the rest of your life. Um, that's some pretty, that's, that's some major, um, movement. My thing is, is that you can grow with your grief, you know, that your grief will ebb and flow like the tide. And sometimes it'll be overwhelming and sometimes it won't, but we can, um, grow, you know, continue to grow with it because we're still here exactly. having to deal with, you know, life without our mom. So um, I also just wanted to say too, I keep meaning to say this in, um, in the podcast, just to anybody that's listening, isn't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to know your mom's wishes about her end of life support, that's a huge deal. Yeah. That's right. I mean, that yeah. you and your dad were able, and your brother were able to say, you know, you knew, that she didn't want to be uh, maintained on life support. Um, yeah, that definitely yeah. made the decision not easier, but less um, less guilt ridden. Yeah, you know? less like personal, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was it was such a such a blessing to know that she wouldn't want that, and it, you know, again, mm-hmm. we would have kept her here forever, but it was it definitely helped us make the decision, knowing what she would want for her own life, and you know, and our own way. It was the last thing that we could have given to her was mm-hmm. respecting her wishes. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So just anyone listening, I mean, I don't know how you are, Andrea, but I, I talk about, you know, death a lot. And so my kids and my dad, my husband all know too, that I, I also don't want to be maintained by any sort of life support or anything. So I would just encourage people listening, have those conversations or hard mm-hmm. conversations. I know people have some yeah. common um, dinner table conversation, but I think it's important things to have, um, especially if you can get it in your will, get it in your will, but make mm-hmm. sure that people, that people and it's understand. Never too early. It's never too early to discuss. I mean, look at the world we live in, you know, we have no idea what tomorrow holds. I mean, right. my right. mom was by no, no means young, but she was not old either. She was 56 when she passed, you know, okay. and you were 25. I was just 24 shy. I was a month shy of turning 25. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's tough. 
Can I ask you about your relationship with your dad now? Are you guys like extremely close? We're, we're very close. I mean, we had um, the typical upbringing where, you know, he worked two jobs and my mom stayed home and raised us. Mm-hmm. So all my life, I was always closer with my mom and, you know, spoke to dad when like I needed permission to go out or, you know, at the dinner table. But, you know, since she passed, it was only him and I in the house. Like I said, my brother had moved out just next door, you know, the nice traditional Italian way, but, um, <laughs> but it was just us in the house and it was this new, you know, new territory that we had to discover. And, um, you know, the bond that we formed, um, it's really grown since then, you know, um, as I said to you earlier, I'm getting married in just a couple of months and I'm still living at home. And the other day, I just got really sad thinking about moving out. Obviously, I'm excited, you know, to start my my life as a wife. But I was just thinking, like, I'm going to miss him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure he's going to miss you, too. <clears throat> um, so this is the only other, the one, other thing when you were talking about, about how time stands still. Like, that's such a, that's, I, I bet you you could. I don't know if you've written a blog about that, but that's just such a um, common theme in a lot of the stories that have been shared is that there's times when moments seems, you know, when there's times when time seems to just fly by and then there's other times when it seems to stand still and just creep by or both all at the same time, like you said. Exactly. Yeah. I think even in our, you know, and everyone I'm sure can agree in your grief journey, like for me, it's been five and a half years and it's, Sometimes it feels like yesterday. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it feels like eternity ago since I've seen my mom. And mm-hmm. I'm sure, mm-hmm. like I said, everyone can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. And I always wonder if, is that some sort of, you know, brain mechanism kind of thing that it won't allow us to fully be able to understand the depth of the pain and the grief. And so, you know, in different moments, it's presented to us in different ways, but I find that really interesting because it definitely is a common theme, um, you know, when people have been, have been talking about this. So you and two friends, two girls that you met have started a local motherless daughters group in your area. Yeah. So one of them um, had approached us. She's very active in her grief journey as well. She lost her mom to pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. um, And she actually has a foundation in her mother's name. Um, and she had messaged me and this other girl and said, you know, I, I want to start a chapter. Will you guys help me run it? And we were both like, yeah, sure. Yeah. And we had been running it for like a few months and we still had never even met in person. And um, the New York City chapter hosts every year. I mean, they haven't because of COVID now, but every year they host um, a Mother's Day Remembrance Brunch in Manhattan. And we all wanted to go. And again, never having met, we were like, well, all right, let's just go together. So three strangers jumped in a car, you know, all with our, you know, our moms in heaven. And we went and, you know, we, we just made a connection that I I cherish, you know, for the rest of my life with them. Mm. Wow. Oh, that's great. That's such a great idea. I'm actually going to my very first grief share group tonight. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. That I just found at a, at a local church. And um, so I'm, you know, excited to see how that, how that goes too. And I thought, keep thinking about starting some sort of um, local group, but I just want to meet in person. Yeah. So I don't blame you. It's a lot, it's a lot easier. You know, we've had a couple of meetups in person 
And the beauty about it is that you can sit and you can talk about your grief or you could just talk about the weather, but knowing that there's someone sitting next to you that just understands you and knows what you're going through is, you know, that's the purpose of, of why we, we have this group and why we come together. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'll put everything in the show notes if you want, like a, a link to your blog and a link to your Instagram account with the affirmations. And so any sort of information that you want to share with you know, the people listening, they can go to the show notes of the podcast and find all the ways to be able oh, to connect great. with you. So that's great. Um, so, so I usually end and I didn't confirm this with you before we started, but I mean, I already have, I have your one quote that I love, but do you have a piece of advice or something that you would want to leave everyone with as we wrap up here? Yeah, yeah, I definitely do. Um, I think for grieving, especially um, specifically for women grieving their moms, I think it's very important um, to mother yourself since mm -hmm. your mom's no longer here. Um, that's a common thing that we talk about in the motherless daughters group. And it's something that has stayed with me. You know, you have to mother yourself. Mm -hmm. When I have the night alone, I, I run a bubble bath and I take a book and I pour myself a glass of wine and that's mothering myself to me. It's, it's just time alone that I'm taking care of myself and my needs. Um, and to tie in with that, you know, I think there's no right or wrong way to grieve as long as you're not harming yourself or anyone else physically or emotionally. I think no one can tell you how to properly grieve, you know, go to the cemetery, you know, take pictures, dance, you know, read a book. I don't know, go on a drive, like whatever you need to do. Again, as long as you're not causing harm to anyone or yourself, I think is healthy and no one should tell you otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. That's one of the things I've been so, um, as I started the Daughters Without Moms groups on Facebook and Instagram last fall, I think maybe October, November. And at that point, you know, it was a, with the pandemic, I was ready to quit social media altogether. And I often say it's crazy that a grief community of complete strangers has been more comforting to me than, uh, you know, there's no judgment there. There's no, there's no condemning. There's no should you should, you could, yeah. you know, this kind of thing. I don't see that very often. I think yeah. it's self-imposed that we think that there's a right way to grieve, but I don't see a whole lot of judgment. Um, Absolutely. And it's a beautiful thing. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. There's just this underlying connection, like you said, that just makes us all like, we're in the same boat. So even mm -hmm. if we don't know each other, there's just that commonality that um, already makes you feel like, you know, that you have a connection. Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, it's a beautiful thing. I'm, I'm a completely different person since I lost my mom and, you know, different for the better. You know, like I said earlier, if, if my mom was here, my life would be perfect. I'm, I'm very, you know, not to sound, you know, all high and mighty because that's not how I mean it, but I'm very proud of the person that I've become in her absence. And I, you know, try to live every day to make her proud and, you know, connecting and sharing these experiences with people and just realizing like what, what's really important in life. And okay. So who cares that she took a picture at the cemetery? Did it make you feel better? Great. Move on. It's not hurting anyone else, you know, right, right. and these Facebook groups, I think are really important because when, you know, when I, we first started it, I said, like, there's a place that you can post about your mom eight times a day. And no one's going to be like, oh, she's posting about her mom again, like, you know, True. so, so it's yeah. important to have these things and it's important to have that community that, you know, mm -hmm. you can go to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, it sounds like you're doing this mother yourself thing pretty well, because <laughs> it, you, you should say damn loud and proud that you are proud of the person that you've become in her absence, because it's not Thank easy. You. Yeah, you. you should be. And especially with your wedding coming up, I, I really, truly hope that you find a way to um, include her in some way and honor She's her. She's in there. She's in there. <laughs> she'll be there. I, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I wholeheartedly believe that she'll be there with you. So. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website, www.yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in sharing your story on the podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.